That is the open door that we ask God for always. That, Lord, you would give us opportunity to share your gospel and to share it clearly with others. But you know, the gospel can easily get obscured. It can get covered over with all kinds of things. It can get confused with different ideas. And we want to clarify today the gospel. The fighter verse this week comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, the first three verses. And what Paul says, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers. He's told them this before. But he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. Now that's the end of the fighter verse, but then of course he goes on to to say that he was raised from the dead and that he was seen by Peter, or Cephas as he describes him there, but seen by Peter, and then the twelve, and then at one point to five hundred people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Well, why was Paul reminding them of this? Why did he feel the need to remind them of the gospel? Why would he feel the need to decide that I need to revisit this again? I need to mention this again. It's vital that they understand that. Well, let me give you two reasons why I think this was vital for Paul. Number one, Corinth was a godless pagan city. Uh, It was a port city with everything awful that a port city could provide at that time. And, uh, and was overrun by all kinds of different pagan religions. And so there was a great deal of religious talk and business that was going on in Corinth. And you had in Corinth uh, two groups of people, particularly you had Gentiles who were heavily influenced by Greek thought. And you had Jews that, of course, were heavily prejudiced in terms of their Torah and against Jesus as the Messiah. In, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he, Paul addresses this, and he says this, verse 18 and then 22 through 24. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see, the Jews in Paul's day and the Jews at Corinth believed that they had all that they needed in the books of the law and the prophets. They didn't need a new message. They didn't need somebody bringing some kind of a new teaching. They weren't 
interested in a Messiah that was coming to teach them uh, things that were new. They had a system that was completely based on obedience to the law. And the only Messiah that they were interested in was a political one, and a political one who would confirm his authenticity by proving things by incredibly miraculous signs. They knew that in the Old Testament it says, cursed is everyone who is hung upon the tree. And Jesus, of course, was hung upon the tree, as it were, or the cross. He was cursed. Now, they did not understand or comprehend that He was bearing the curse for our sake. Their way of thinking did not allow for that. And so the idea of a crucified Messiah, one that was hung on a tree and cursed, was totally anathema to them. No real Messiah would die like that. And so the resurrection, the idea that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, was patently and completely absurd to those who had never witnessed it or seen it. The Gentiles of Corinth, as I said, were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, and they considered the very idea of a crucified and raised Messiah who was raised in a physical body and glorified in a physical body uh, it did not jive with their thinking the way that they understood what was important in uh, religion and certainly in a Savior. And so there was a lot of opposition. Add to this all kinds of different false teachers and false prophets and false apostles and people that were spreading all kinds of different information. The second reason that Paul feels it's vital to remind them of the gospel is because this is foundational to everything. It is foundational to everything. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are at the core of Christian faith. And if we drift, if we drift from that truth, if we drift from that gospel, then we are susceptible to substitutes for it. If we drift from the foundation of the gospel, we are susceptible to substitutes for it. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you what is of first importance. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. I delivered to you that which is of first importance. He didn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He, he didn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He didn't say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He didn't say that, uh, that I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. He, he didn't say anything about loving one another. He didn't say anything about loving God even. He says, I deliver to you, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was raised from the dead. This is what He says is of first importance. 
none of that other stuff made it to the level of first importance. Only this, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was raised from the dead. That is of what's first importance. Why did none of that other stuff, why did those exclusive claims, listen everybody, Jesus is the light of the world. There's no way to God except through Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He is the king. There is absolutely nothing like that. Why did that stuff not make it into first importance? And in 1 Corinthians 15, it's obvious why the whole chapter is about the validity of the resurrection. And so the reason it's so important, because if there is no resurrected Jesus, none of that matters anyway. None of that stuff Jesus said. There's no resurrection from the dead. He's just a guy that had some good thoughts, like a lot of people have good thoughts. But also, if he is resurrected from the dead, then all that stuff matters. All those things he said matters. Everything Jesus taught matters. But why does it matter? It matters because Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised again on the third day. We face the same kinds of issues today. People of all types of beliefs and philosophies reject the idea of a crucified and resurrected Savior, even if they accept the historical reality of Jesus, which is fairly undeniable to any decent scholar, if they accept the historical reality of Jesus, if they accept the historical fact of His crucifixion, their system does not allow, their closed system does not allow for a resurrected Savior who claims that He's the only way to God. And it is painful, friends, to watch the church in our day try to adapt its message to be more palatable to a hostile world. There is a stream of thought in the church, not in the world, in the church. There is a stream of thought that wants to diminish the person of Jesus, wants to separate Jesus from the idea of a Christ consciousness. A very popular book in our day is Richard Rohr's The Cosmic or The Universal Christ, in which he teaches the importance of separating the Christ consciousness from the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was used by God. But, as Rohr said, on the day of the resurrection, you would not have seen the figure of a man walking out of a tomb, only glorious Christ light filling the skies. Because God is light, and Christ is in everything, and in every, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much of that that goes on. There's so many Young believers, millennials especially, that are attracted to Rohr's writings because of the way that he writes. There's so much of this that is out there that is contrary to the gospel. And they want to diminish Jesus. They want to diminish His words. They, they want to elevate some of the teachings of Jesus, 
right? Blessed are the peacemakers. That's a favorite. I was poor and you gave, you gave me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was naked and you clothed me. They love that one. They love all the scriptures in which Jesus says, take care of everybody and love everybody. But they reject the exclusive claims of Jesus. I am God. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They want to elevate some teachings of Jesus and blend it into some kind of pluralistic mishmash that simply does this. It preaches an ethic for universal behaving, not a Savior from sin. As long as Jesus can contribute along with Buddha and Gandhi's and Krishna's and, every other, and, 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 and Allah and every other religion of the world that is, has anything at all good to say that they can pull out and kind of mishmash it up and say, here's, here's what we need, an ethic for behaving, not a Savior from sin. We are always in danger, folks, if we muddy the waters of gospel truth. When we treat the gospel, when we treat our faith, and listen, we are prone to do this, particularly because many of us as evangelicals, the dirty word of the day, many of us as evangelicals speak out on issues that center around the behavior of people. And often that's the only thing that anybody ever hears. They just think that's your ethic. That's your model for behavior. And we have a different model for behavior. Or we think other things are true. And we don't, and we lose our impact. We lose our impact when we treat our faith as a system of required behavior rather than an invitation to know the transforming power of a resurrected Savior, of a living Jesus. When all anyone ever hears from us are our opinions on the behavior of the day, and listen, watch for this in places where you work or when you're out with neighbors or when you're talking to other people, how much of your time do you spend complaining about the behavior of certain people rather than exalting the Savior who offers you life? We have to be careful. We have to be careful. We cannot buy into the spirit of this age, which is hostile and angry and accusatory and looking for opportunities to point the fingers at others. We cannot be people whose primary witness in this world is about a behavioral ethic. Oh, Jeffrey, you're saying that those things aren't important? No, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but I'm saying this, this is of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was raised from the dead. That is the... Listen, anybody 
can say, well, I think this about abortion, or I think this about gay marriage, or I think this about homosexuality, or I think this about socialism, or I think this about the president, or I think this about the... We, we can jump on that stuff all day. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. You can have a behavioral ethic that lines up with things that the Scripture teaches and not know Jesus. You just adopt that ethic. If, if that's our main message, if that's what rouses us, what gets your goat? What rouses you in a discussion? You're talking with somebody and they say, oh, I think this about this country, or I think this about this president, or I think this about evangelical Christians, blah, blah, blah. And then what's, your, what's the thing that gets you into that discussion, and which way do you go in that discussion? Is your witness your opinion? Is your witness the law that you believe Jesus fulfilled? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying there's not room for that. I'm not saying there's not place for that, those kinds of discussions. But what I am saying is that I think it's easy to drift into a place where we think that those things are of first importance. And what is of first importance is that Christ died for our sins and that He is resurrected. You want to argue that with people? That's a good place to have a discussion. Resurrection, Savior, Christ died for our sins. I needed forgiveness. I needed hope. I needed a life change. I needed to make sense of my life. I needed purpose in my life. I needed to be forgiven. I knew I was guilty before God of so many things. Not them, not you, me. I needed a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. We have to be careful. We don't want to dishonor our Savior distort the gospel and push people away before we ever have a chance to bear witness to the love and redemption that's in Jesus Christ. You all out there with me? Not making anybody mad this morning, hopefully. All right, here we go. The gospel is going to offend people. You, you say, oh, we, wanna, we should be careful not to offend anybody. You've got to get rid of that. You've got to get rid of that. Now, I will say to you, don't go out of your way to offend people by preaching about a behavioral ethic. If you preach morality, if you preach a behavioral ethic, if you let it be known what you disapprove of and what's right and what's wrong, you may have a good discussion. You may even persuade somebody to think the way that you're thinking, but that will not save them. That will not introduce them to Christ. You should be offensive, and you should say the most offensive thing in the world. Christ died for your sins and was raised to life so that you could be forgiven. You tell people they need a Savior you tell people they need forgiveness, that's offensive. <laughs> that's offensive. So let's be offensive. But let's be offensive with the right stuff. The most important stuff. 
In verse 3, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Here's the Gospel in its simplicity. Notice Paul doesn't add a lot of stuff to it. There's no... Romans road added in here. There's no two ways to live added in here. There's no extra stuff in here. He just states the facts, doesn't he? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for, you know I believe there's a place for explaining the gospel and helping people to understand the gospel. But what Paul's doing here is just relating the facts. He's like Jack Webb and Dragnet. He's just the factsman. Obviously not... You older people know what I'm talking about, don't you? Jack Webb. So here's the gospel in its simplicity. Christ died. Why? Christ died for our sins. My sin, my separation from God. Christ died according to the Scriptures. There is in the Scriptures a message of reconciliation and forgiveness in Christ. Christ was buried. He was truly dead. He was three days in the tomb. Christ was raised from the dead. This is a miracle validation of God's promise of forgiveness and hope through Messiah Jesus. That's it. Here is what is of first importance, that truth. Because if that truth, if any part of that is not true, we have nothing. We are, of, as Paul said, we are of all people to be most pitied that we even bother to get out and get wet and get here this morning. We're to, we're to be pitied. We are absurd if any part of that is not true. But if it is true, then it all matters more than we can possibly say. And it is true. Aaron, it is true. It is. Marie, it's true. It is true. Now Christ is raised from the dead. So what do we do with that gospel? What do we do with that gospel? Let me point you to the, to the uh, uh, first part of that passage again. What do we do with it? He says, now I would remind you, verse 1, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And then he says this. He pauses. Before he shares it, he says this. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So three things here he says about this gospel. Number one, it has to be received. It has to be received and believed. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, he says the following, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so the gospel is something that has to be received, believed, 
and confess. Secondly, he says this gospel is something that you stand in. That you stand in. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The Christian never bases his life on an ethic of behavior. He bases his life on Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. In Colossians 3, Paul says the following. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And then he says this, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And you say, well, look, Jeff, there it is, you see? There's an ethic of behavior. He's talking about how you behave. How you behave is very, very important. It is not as important as Christ in you. So how can you say that? Here's how I can say that. Because if Christ is not in you, the ethic profits you nothing. If Christ is not in you, the ethic matters nothing. It's only because I am in Christ. Notice what he says. He says, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is you, who is your life appears, you'll appear with Him in glory. And then he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Notice that word earthly again. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you in you. I can sum up that entire behavioral ethic for you this way. Whatever hinders your affection for Christ, put that to death. Whatever keeps you from rejoicing in Christ, whatever keeps you from loving Christ, whatever keeps you from seeking Christ, whatever keeps you from honoring Christ, loving Christ, glorifying Christ, loving Him, being enamored with Him, being affectionate toward Him, everything that helps you do that, do it. And everything that doesn't help you do that, put a fork in it. Put it to death, he says. Put it to death death. Does that mean, okay, now I'm going to bear down and I'm going to make sure I get all the ethical stuff right. I'm going to make sure I get the behavioral model right. No! I'm going to make sure I'm focused on Christ. I'm going to make sure I'm loving Christ. I'm going to make sure I'm worshiping Christ. I'm going to make sure I'm listening to Christ in His Word. I'm going to make sure I'm talking to Christ through prayer. I'm going to make sure I'm fellowshipping with Christ through my brothers and sisters. I'm going to make sure I'm getting fed by Christ and that I'm partaking of Christ at the table. I'm just going to keep loving Christ. My friends, the behavioral ethics will take care of themselves. Walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, Paul said. For the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. You with me? That's why it's so vital, so vital to keep Jesus front and center. There is a time and place to talk about 
the ethics. There's a time and place to talk about these things, but none of this matters if we're not loving Christ with all of our heart. Life change flows from a different new orientation. That is the operation of grace in our lives. He goes on to say, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Now listen, he's just said all this other stuff, right? Put to death this, put to death, uh, you know, uh, uh, evil desires, impurities, passions, covetousness. Don't, don't lie anymore. Speak truth to each other. Uh, put, put, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, uh, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. Where does he take it right back to? Christ died for me. Jesus is the measure of all things. Christ died for me, and I belong to Him, and so I can put on love, which binds everything together. And the peace of Christ, he finishes that section saying, and the peace of Christ, which binds every, will rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called. Christians are not to be people stressing over whether they're getting it all right or not. We're to be simply obsessing with the love of Jesus, the love of Christ. The more I love Him, the less I love the world. The more I see Him, the less I see the allurements of this world. The more I follow Him, the less pull the world has on me. The more I know Him, the more people will taste and see that the Lord is good in me. Yeah? Then he says this. So we stand in the gospel. We're always remembering the gospel. We're always preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're, we're fueling Holy Spirit-fired gratitude in our lives. And then he says this. In verse 2, and by which you are being saved, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Two ways that your faith or belief could be in vain. Two ways. Number one is if there's no resurrection from the dead. And Paul says that in the rest of this chapter. If there is no resurrection from the dead, our faith is in vain. Our, our convictions are in vain. It's ridiculous. Eat, he says, let's go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? And so, Paul's saying that all of this is in vain. It's in vain. If you've believed in vain, if there's no resurrection from the dead, and he deals with that in the rest of the passage, but here's the other way. Here's the other way it can be in vain. If you've never truly received it. If you've never truly received it. Now I know I'm talking to the choir pretty much in this, in this room. 
And yet, and yet, only you and the Holy Spirit knows your heart. And you, not so well. (laughs) And so the Scriptures admonish us to look for the fruit of that relationship, to look for the evidence of that love. See, forget the behavioral ethic. Quit thinking in those terms. Think about fruit. Am I loving more? Am I filled with kindness, faithfulness, goodness, love, joy, peace, patience? Am I, am I looking more like Christ? Do I desire Christ? Do I desire to know Him more? Do I have any desire in my life to follow after Christ? Now, you may think this way. Well, Jeff, yeah, I think I do, but gosh, not enough. Stop it. Stop it. Do not do that. Without the Spirit of God, you would have distaste for Christ. Without the Spirit of God, you would have no interest in Christ. Without the Spirit of God, you would be hostile to the law of God and hostile to Christ. You would not care. You would not bother to ask yourself the question. So don't despise a little flame. It says of our Lord that He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. He'll not break off the branch that is bruised. You may be bent, and you may be smoky, but that doesn't mean you're dead. Okay? But if there is no desire, if there's no desire for Christ, and this is what you're going to encounter in the world around you. This is what you're encountering when you are with people who don't know Him. They haven't tasted the goodness of the Lord. They don't care about that. They're not interested in that. And if you proclaim a true gospel around them, it will be offensive to them that you believe such nonsense or that you would suggest that they needed forgiveness. And so, we have to realize that as we go about our business in this world. But listen, And I will say it, I've said it many times in this fellowship, even though I'm convinced from what I can see, and in a church our size, I can pretty much see everybody, know what everybody's, I know most people here. But that does not mean, just because I see you and I think it, does not mean that you have believed in Christ, that you've received Christ. If you are coming out of obligation, if you are doing something out of a sense of responsibility, if there is nothing past Sunday morning for you, if there is nothing in your life, nothing in your heart that wants to know and love and glorify Christ, then you may have believed in vain. You may have never received what you thought you might have believed. That's why Paul said 
if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. You know, you'll see people who say, oh, well, anybody can just say, Jesus is Lord, so you're saved. No, 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 no. That's the confession that you make, but that confession is preceded by believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Let me tell you something. If you are believing that God has raised Christ from the dead, you are being regenerated. You're being brought to life. There is faith rising in your heart. Because it's because think about it. It's crazy. Think about it. You know, go out and tell the first ten people you see. Christ is risen from the dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our world does not believe that. Unregenerate people don't believe that. If you believe that, God is at work in you. If you believe that, then your confession will be, oh, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, and if the Spirit has been brought to life in you, then there will be an ongoing desire to know Him, to glorify Him. So, have you received Him? Have you believed in Him? Have you truly trusted Him? If not, and you know it, then make sure you come to this table today and make sure you call upon this Jesus. If you believe in your heart, all of you who believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, come to the table of the Lord today and rejoice in His goodness. Rejoice in His forgiveness. This is of what is of first importance. This is the reason why we have communion every Sunday, because this is of first importance. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks and said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat this, all of you, in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is what is of first importance. Christ died for your sins. And the resurrected Jesus extends you an invitation to come to His table. So come with thanksgiving. Come and be forgiven. Come and be strengthened. Come and be healed. Come and be free. Expect much from your communion. He wants you to. He wants you to. Amen.